Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. You just gotta have faith. It's like the cliche answer that church people love to give. It's like chicken noodle soup. Remember in my house growing up, chicken noodle soup was the cure for everything. Got a cold, got a fever, got a sinus infection, nosebleed, chicken noodle soup. Having a bad day, chicken noodle soup. It fixes everything. You just got to have faith is sort of this cure-all answer that we so often love to give people. Doesn't matter what's going on. If you lost your job, you got a loved one that's in the hospital, struggling in relationships, struggling in your situations, just going through a hard time, battling, don't know what to do, problems all around you, pain in your life, doesn't matter. You just got to have faith. Any pain, any problem, any obstacle, and there will inevitably be a Christian in your life offering you the unsolicited advice of, you just got to have faith. And the frustrating thing about that is not that the answer is wrong. It's just typically given in a manner that is completely unhelpful. We talk a lot about faith despite the fact that oftentimes we fail to understand or appreciate what it is. He's not talking about me. I got faith. I believe in Jesus. Cool. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. So biblical faith has to go beyond just the mental acceptance of an idea. That is what's referred to as easy believism. Right, that I believe in Jesus and I acknowledge that he's Lord and therefore I don't have to do anything else in life because I'm saved by that alone. I just believe. Right, like I believe the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I believe that water is wet. I believe that despite all of our advances in medicine and technology, there is still no cure for stupid. Very strong conviction about that one. Spend any time on the internet, you start to wonder if we have a treatment plan at all. But you know what all those beliefs have in common? They have almost no impact on my life. They don't change how I think. They don't change how I behave. They influence me in almost no way. So when the Bible talks about faith, that is absolutely not what it means. So if you're relatively new with us, we like to spend a lot of time in the Word. We just came out of a six-month series in Nehemiah. We're getting ready after Easter to go into an eight-month study through Hebrews. But every now and then, we like to do something really crazy and weird, like spend six weeks on one verse. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, uh, we spent we're six weeks in this verse looking at it because it is such a key verse in our understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus and to set an example for Jesus. You see, the Christian life is a life that's all about Christ. 
When you come to Jesus and you believe in him, here's what happens. Your life stops being about you. You stop being the center of your universe. You stop sitting on the throne of your heart. You're no longer your focus. You're no longer your world. You're no longer your priority because when you believe in Jesus, it is no longer you but Jesus who sits on the throne of your heart. That's what it means to believe in him. To believe in Jesus is to surrender your life to Jesus. And that means that everything that you have, everything that you are, belongs to Jesus. It means what you say, what you do, how you treat the people around you, your priorities, your values, everything about you is all about Jesus. It's being a follower of Jesus. Means that everything in your life is focused on pursuing Jesus, honoring Jesus, and following Jesus, obeying Jesus. It's First Timothy four twelve. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We have this tendency to think of faith as a spiritual trait, something that spiritual people have. Believers are men and women of faith. It's cute. It just happens to be absolutely wrong. Everyone has faith. From the most devout believer to the most antagonistic atheist, we all operate on faith because faith is a vehicle. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is not whether they have faith, it's where they've placed that faith. Because your faith, that's what you trust. It's what you rely on. It's what you turn to for your security and your satisfaction. Your faith is what you serve and pursue and desire. And the best way to identify where your faith is is to look at where your focus is. See, in the Old Testament, God set apart the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, to be a holy nation unlike every other nation in the world, and he set them apart with the law. 613 commands, all of which are built around the Ten Commandments. The first of those commandments in Exodus 20, verse 3, and the greatest of those commandments, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. That phrase before me actually literally means in my presence. What God is saying in that command is not, I need to be number one. He's saying is, I'm the only one. God alone is worthy of worship. God alone is worthy of our faith. And we hear it, and at first, like the natural instinct, right, is like, hey, that one's easy. I'll just not believe in any of the gods of other religions. I'll believe only in the Christian God, and I'm good. Check it off and move to the next one. So far, batting a thousand. The first commandment is not the easiest to follow. It's the hardest. Because when we place our trust, our hope, and our desire in something that is not God, we turn that thing into a false God. And we are surrounded by false gods. 
The whole world is filled with false gods, and worshiping them comes so naturally to us that we often fail to recognize that we're even doing it because it doesn't register. Money, power, control, sex, entertainment, pleasure, ego, sports. <gasps> you take that back right now. Sports are not a false god. How dare you? Okay, so look, before you start planning the angry email in your head, just stick with me for a second. How often do we treat sports like they are more worthy of our time, attention, passion, and devotion than we do God? Like I see the church, like you come into church for worship and you stand there like this and then you go to a sports game and half of your body is painted the color of your favorite sports team. It's a little different. Please don't come here painted. The seats are not that easy to clean. How often can we recite statistics about our favorite team and favorite player and yet we can't recite a single verse of scripture outside of maybe John 3.16? Stick with me. Comfort, politics, reputation, all of these can be false gods. Now, I need you to hear that clearly before you start, Pastor Tyler said, and getting ready to go. <laughs> can be is the operative phrase, though they can be false gods. Let me be clear. These things are not evil in and of themselves. Any more than gold shaped into the form of a statue is innately evil. But you think that we don't worship false gods just because we don't bow down to statues? If all we had to do to avoid worshiping false gods was to avoid metal shaped into the form of a bovine, the only thing we'd have to do is stay out of a steakhouse. Or like P.F. Chang's, because I get that big old like horse that's kind of on the fence. There is nothing. Let me be very, very clear here before, again, you form the email. There's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with loving sports and being passionate about sports and knowing things about sports. I'm not saying don't do that. What I'm saying is when we invest more of our time, energy, and devotion to something in creation rather than the creator, it becomes a problem. Anything that we treat as being more worthy of our focus and our pursuit than the Creator becomes a problem. See, these things, all of these things, they're not evil things. What makes them a false god is not what they are, but rather the devotion and reverence that we treat them with. When we turn to something for security or for satisfaction that is not God, we make that thing a false God. See, faith is one of the most important elements of the Christian life. The Bible says, by faith we're saved. By faith we become children of God. Did you know that you and I were not born children of God? Ephesians 2 says, we are by nature objects of wrath. That we were steeped in sin from birth. We are not born children of God. We are by the grace of God through faith in Jesus adopted into the family of God and given the right to become children of God. Through faith 
we are made right with God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God through faith. We receive the righteousness of God. Faith is an essential, eternal issue. And faith changes everything. More accurately, where you place your faith changes everything. In a world filled with false gods, the first step in setting an example in our faith is placing it in the right thing. Let me show you to me. Daniel chapter 3. The kingdom of Babylon is ruled by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to build a giant statue out of gold. And he declares that the whole nation has to bow down and worship the statue that he made. And if they don't, they'll be burned alive, which is not really pleasant. So then there's these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're just like, yeah, you know what? We're not doing that. We're not going to bow down to this statue. So they blatantly refuse. And that's where our story begins in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Daniel. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Okay, so kings are kind of, this is the thing with them, they're used to getting what they want. Sometimes people kind of ignore them for a little bit, and so they call them in. And when you're in the presence of the king, the assumption is you're going to do whatever the king says. He goes, okay, you guys didn't get this right? I'm standing right here. Go ahead. And his expectation is that they're going to do what he says, because that's kind of how it works with the king. And it says, but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Facing certain death, all they have to do is kneel down to a statue. They don't have to mean it. They can cross their fingers behind their back. They can wait till they leave the palace and be like, not fooled him. It doesn't have to be genuine. It doesn't have to be sincere. They just have to do it. And they live. They said, no, we're not doing that. Under threat of agonizing death, they say no on the basis that they knew that God could save them. They didn't know whether or not he would, but they knew he could, and that was enough. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith is not in comfort. It's not in safety. It's not in anything in this life, or they would have done whatever they had to do to preserve it. I mean, you can imagine, right, how easy it would be to justify that. I mean, God's a loving God, right? He would, he would understand. He doesn't want me to die. So I'll just, I'll just fake it. 
I'll apologize to him later, and we'll be good, because certainly God's not going to hold that against me. He's threatening to kill me. How easy would it be to justify, to rationalize it, to explain why it's okay? They say, God can deliver us from your hand, O king, but even if he does not, we will not bow to your idols. That makes the king really happy. King's love being told no. So he has the furnace heated up seven times hotter, and he throws them in. Now we sing a song about it. We'll sing it later today. Another in the fire. Because when the king looks in, he doesn't see three people. He sees a fourth. There was another in the fire with them. They were not burned. They were not consumed. And because of the faith of three men, the king of Babylon witnessed the power of God and believed. And the Bible is full of stories like this. Got a whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the Faith Hall of Fame. There's just story after story of the miraculous work of God, of how God delivered his people from impossible situations. He shuts the mouths of lions. He parts the sea over and over again. You read it. And as you're reading it, you kind of start getting amped up. Like every time the people of God do something and somebody tries to stop them, God miraculously steps in and delivers them. And it's awesome. And you're like, yeah, I'm here for it. Let's go. You want to come up? Come on at me, bro. Let's do this. <laughs> and then you get to verse 35. So some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They were tortured because of their faith in God. And in that torture, they were offered a way out. All you have to do to make this pain end is deny God or worship this false God. All you got to do is just give in. And they'd be released. But they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. If you're unfamiliar with how flogging works, it is not a pleasant process. We talk about it a little bit on Good Friday. If you haven't heard about it, you should come check that out. It's, it's a really powerful thing to understand. But for summary's sake, it's not pleasant. And even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, that stoned with a bang, not with a bong. They were sawn in two, which is not like by a magician. When they got sawed in two, they didn't get put back together again. They were killed with swords, which is about the most pleasant of the options in here. They went around in skin, about in skins of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And yet there are a lot of churches and Christians who believe that if you have faith in God, your life will be happy, healthy, wealthy, and successful. Guess they skipped that part of the Bible. Faith is not a promise of a problem-free, pain-free life. It's a promise of a better eternal life with Jesus. The problem with our faith is that it's so often dependent on our circumstances. It's easy to have faith on the mountaintop, right? When everything is good, things go the way you want. Easy. But what happens in the dark season of the soul? 
What happens when everything around you seems to be falling apart, when there's pain and there's suffering everywhere you look and you just feel like you're living in agony and there is no apparent hope, no apparent way out? Like for some of us, this is not a hypothetical. This is where we live right now. And you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you wonder, how am I supposed to have faith in God when everything around me is wrong? How am I supposed to have faith that God is so good in the midst of all this pain? What am I supposed to do? How do I have faith then? Remember two things. God is in control. Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. There's two components of that that we need to recognize. One, it's not the good of everyone. It's the good of those who love him. And two, it doesn't say that God will make, that all things will be good. It says he will make and work all things for good. The good that he works we may not see or recognize on this side of heaven. But we know that he is in control and that he is working all that happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for our ultimate good. And number two, we remember the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident. It's not like God was in heaven and Jesus was doing his ministry and God just like turned his back to get dinner out of the oven and by the time he turned around and put Jesus on the cross, he's like, what? No, what have you done? The execution of God's son was the execution of God's plan. And if Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the word through which all things came into existence, the greatest thing in all of existence, suffered and died and calls us to follow him, why do we expect that our fate will be different? Life has pain. We live in a broken world that is filled with sin and despair and loneliness and heartache and loss. Having faith in Jesus does not magically cure all of that in this life. Following Jesus doesn't make life easier. In fact, it usually makes it harder. Because Jesus says, you're going to have trouble. In this life, you'll have trouble. He tells us over and over again, not if the storms come, but when they come. But what he also does is he adds to it. Not only are you going to have the troubles of this life and the pain of living in a broken world, but you're going to add to that the trouble of following me. Because if the world hated you, they're going to hate me. Or if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. I did that backwards. If the world rejects me, they're going to reject you. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. And what they do to Jesus? They persecuted him. Following Jesus often makes life more difficult in this world because we don't live for this world. We don't belong to this world. We're living for something greater. And what I want to tell you is that God took the darkest event in all of history, a moment filled with pain and despair and loneliness and death, and he used it to bring salvation into the world. God took the worst moment in history and he used it to give hope to everyone. So when you find yourself in that dark season of the soul where everything seems to be going wrong and nothing is the way you think it should be, what you remember is that God does his best work when all hope seems lost.
And there is no situation that you can find yourself in, no struggle, no loss, no pain, that God does not have the power to deliver you from. And maybe he'll deliver you in this moment, and maybe he'll deliver you later, but he will deliver you. Because there's nothing that you endure, nothing that you walk through, no dark season that you walk through alone. And the comfort that we have will always be knowing what God can do. God is a God of the impossible. And in him there is always hope. See, what we have to understand, church, is that Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people better versions of themselves. He didn't come to make sad people happy. He came to make dead people alive. He came to set us free from sin. And the message of the gospel is a message of hope. That by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, we receive salvation. And we can be delivered from the darkness that surrounds us. That we can be delivered from the death that would otherwise define us. By grace, through faith, because of the work of Jesus, we have the promise of eternal life. And we need to be really clear here. It's the work of Jesus. It's his work, not your work. So the problem that happens, and the reason I get very perturbed by this general sort of cure-all way that we use the word faith and we approach it, is because the more you make it an answer to everything, the broader and the more obscure the concept becomes. And because we don't clearly define it, because we don't clearly understand it, before, because we just use it as this big stamp that we slap on everything, we end up putting our faith in the wrong thing. The modern church is filled with people who have an incredible passion for a Jesus that they don't actually know. Jesus is the Word of God. And we don't take time to know that word, to know him. How can you trust a Jesus that you don't know? How can you place your faith in Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is? And so we can fill our hearts all we want. We can have these emotional moments until we're blue in the face. But if our heads are empty with an understanding of God, it means very little because we're going to put our faith in the wrong thing. We might call it Jesus, but it's not actually Jesus. How often do we come to Jesus and continue to try to save ourselves? We talk about grace, right? We use the word. But we still have our trust in our own life. We bring our performance-based culture into our relationship with God. So we try to do the right things. We try to live well, follow the rules, be good, because we think of life like a scale. Like if I could just get enough weight on the good side of the scale and keep enough weight off of the bad side of the scale, I could be good enough. 
I can earn it. I can prove myself worthy. And despite the fact that we talk about the grace of God, we continue to live as if we are trying to earn or prove ourselves worthy of that grace. That's not trusting Jesus. That's not the gospel. That is slavery. Is what happens. We keep trying to put good on the good side, keep bad off the bad side. And then we do something wrong. We make a mistake, screw something up. And it's like a, a skyscraper of guilt and shame comes collapsing down all around us. And it immobilizes us, and we get filled with this fear and this worry because what if that's too far? What if we skip the te- scales in a way that we can't undo? What if we're now too broken, too lost, too far gone? What if this sin, this mistake is going to be something that defines us and God is now going to be done with us because we can't ever get it back to even? So many Christians live their whole lives in a performance prison because we've put our faith in the wrong thing. We say, I'm a good person. That's what we're saying. We're saying, I'm good enough. I've lived well enough. I've done enough good things and I have a good enough attitude and heart that I deserve to be saved. I've earned it. I'm worthy of it. But deep down, it never feels like it's enough. What if we're going to feel good enough? Worthy enough. Because we continue to try to earn what Jesus has already given Church, there is nothing more freeing, nothing that will give you more peace in this life than taking your faith off of yourself. Because listen, you and I, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. We're going to fall short. We're going to screw things up. And if our trust and our reliance and our dependence is in ourselves and our performance, we will always live in the fear that that performance isn't good enough. We fail. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't know how to fail. He's incapable of it. Of the few things that Jesus cannot do, failure is one of them. Jesus says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus says, the son will lose none that the father has given to him. The Bible says, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we are taught through scripture is if we belong to Jesus and he holds us in his hand, he will not leave us, he will not lose us, and nothing can take us from him. Do you understand the peace that comes from that security? From knowing that the almighty God who cannot be overpowered, who cannot be stopped, holds you in his hand and will not let you go. The freedom and the peace that comes 
from knowing that that is true even in your imperfection, even with your past and your mistakes and your failures and all the things you've done wrong, you are intimately and perfectly known and still he holds you in his hand. So that sin that you fall into tomorrow, he holds you in his hand. That past that you don't know how to let go of, he holds you in his hand. And nothing can take you from it. When we place our trust for eternity on ourselves, we will never truly have peace because we're relying on something that fails. But to trust in Jesus is to depend on him. It is to rely on him. It is to believe that when Jesus says you're good and you're mine, that you are good and you are his and you don't need anything else. And what happens, church, when you truly place your faith in Jesus is that fear and worry start to fade out of your life. Because if you can trust Jesus for eternity, if you can trust Jesus and rely on him for the most important thing, then we can trust him today. Not that he's always going to do things the way we want. Not that situations are going to go the way that we like, but we can trust him in it. Whether we're thrown into the fire and consumed, we're thrown in rescued, or we're not thrown in at all, we can trust in him. And if Jesus has secured your eternity, if he has secured paradise with him forever, what do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to worry about? With an eternity of perfection, with no tears and no loss and no pain or sorrow ahead of us, what do we have to worry about? We had a bad day. Things didn't go well. We're struggling for a short season, but compared to eternity, it's not even memorable. All of it's going to get washed away. So what do we have to worry about? What do we have to fear? If we live, we get to serve Jesus. If we die, we get to be with Jesus. Either way, we win. Because the greatest event in the life of a Christian is the moment you die. And yet we spend all our time being afraid of it and worried about it. You're worried about the greatest thing that's going to happen to you. But the greatest gift you will ever have. When you place your faith in Jesus, fear and worry begin to fade. And they lose all hold over you. See, biblical faith is discipleship. It's following Jesus. And what does Jesus tell us we need to do in order to follow him? He says, you die to yourself, you deny yourself, you take up your cross. There is no following Jesus that is not carried on the shoulders of self-denial. And that takes faith. In fact, everything in the Christian life takes faith. Because faith is the fuel that empowers us to do what God has called us to do. 
Every aspect of what the Word teaches us is fueled by our faith. You know how we serve despite the fact that in our flesh we are wildly selfish people? By our faith in Jesus. You know how we forgive people who have wronged us even though they haven't asked for it and don't deserve it? It's faith in Jesus. Do you know how you love someone who is behaving in such an unlovely way? It's faith in Jesus. Every aspect of what Jesus has called us to do, he has equipped and empowered us to do through our faith in him. So how do we grow that faith? Faith almost always follows your focus. The world around us, with all its treasures and pleasures, lures us with its enticing, shiny things, with its neon lights, and its false promises. And it's easy so easy to get caught up in them. And the more we focus on them, the more important they seem to become. What does it say about us when we worry about the same things the world does? When we fear what the world fears? When we trust what the world trusts, desire what the world desires, pursues what the world pursues? What does it say about Jesus when the people who belong to him, their lives are almost identical to those who don't? set an example in faith turn your eyes turn your eyes from the things of this world from the hollow, shallow offerings that they bring because they are not worthy of your reliance, they're not worthy of your dependence, they're not worthy of your faith, so turn from the things of this world and turn your eyes upon Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus focus your heart on Jesus because something really strange happens when you do When you focus yourself on the glory and grace that is Jesus, the things of this world, they become strangely dim. When you focus your heart on the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who left the comfort of heaven out of his great love for you, who took on flesh and died on a cross, died in your place and in my place. He paid our price. He took our pain upon himself that by his death we might have the right to become children of God, that by the grace of God, through our faith in him and through the work that he finished on the cross, we could have life. And on that cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. You don't have to earn it anymore. You don't have to work for it anymore. You don't have to be perfect or perform for it anymore. You're not singing for supper. I've done the work. Trust in me and live accordingly. Because when you focus on the God that loves you like that, that died for you, that you could have life with him, it's crazy how everything else kind of fades away. Greater faith in Jesus begins with greater focus on Jesus. That is what communion is all about. On your way in at the table, there was a little cup with some bread and juice. If you didn't get one, they're on the tables here in the back. If you want to do that, uh, we'd like to take these elements together. So if you want to get out the bread, the, the bread that represents the body of Jesus, the body that was broken for you so that your body didn't have to be, 
the body that was broken so that you could receive a new body in the perfection of the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus brings when he fulfills the end of his promise. For the God who doesn't fail has promised us a new life with him. Let's take the bread together. And the cup that represents his blood, the blood that was shed for you, the life that was poured out for you so that through it you could have eternal life and I could have eternal life, the blood that covers us from all sin and transgression through our faith in the one who shed it. Let's take the juice again. Faith. It's all about trust and obedience. And when we place that trust in Jesus, we place it in something so secure that it cannot be shaken and it cannot be taken. Where you place your faith changes every aspect of your life. So where are you going to place it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us see past the things of this world and to move our minds and our hearts from the distractions that surround us that all that we have and are could be fixed on you. Wake us up in the morning with your song in our hearts and your words on our lips that we might never cease praising, that we might never cease pursuing the God that you and you alone be the one that we find worthy of our time and desire. Grow us in you. Shape us to be more like you that we could be an example through which you draw all to you. And may the praise that we bring and the songs we sing be pleasing in your eyes. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.